Welcome back, everyone. This is Gary Sheffer. I'm a professor of public relations at Boston University's College of Communication. And we're ready for another episode of The Crux of the Story. Co-host Mike Fernandez is ready with wit, wisdom, <laughs> to weigh in on everything PR and communications. Mike, how you doing? Good morning, Gary. I have, I have a question or two for you before we get started. Okay. As, we're, as we're recording this, just for our audience, I want them to know that this is our first show after the wedding of Gary's oh. daughter, Sarah, who yes. has been a guest on the show, right? Um, That's right. The Leeds Communication at Refu Refugees International. Uh, Gary, the two questions I have for you are this. Number one, how did it go as the bride's father? And number oh. two, were you at any time pressed to use your crisis communication skills? Oh, that's a great question. Uh, so the answer to the second one is yes, but I don't want to go into details. Uh -oh. there were, you, know, you know, it's always crises when you bring together those kind of, but all good. All good. Like, don't take the golf cart and drive it around the property, you know, after you've had three dirty martinis. Um, <laughs> and then... Uh, you know, it went really, really well. And uh, Sarah, um, both of them are communicators. Uh, Cooper Hewell is Sarah's new husband, and he's a writer and works on uh, not-for-profit issues as well as Sarah. And so they're just back from their honeymoon in Maine. I did, I, I want to say, Mike, you know, people know I'm a Bruce Springsteen fan. And uh, so Sarah wanted to do the dance, our father-daughter dance, Dancing in the Dark, at suggested that song. <laughs> So I came out dressed as best I can at 63 years old, like Bruce Springsteen. And oh, my goodness. So with Sarah, you know, in jeans and in a black T-shirt. Yeah, sort of like that. So anyway, I don't look like Bruce Springsteen. I don't dance like him, but I can certainly dress like him. So uh, anyway, thank you for asking. It was a wonderful, wonderful day. And uh, I'm just recovering now. Uh, about a week out and it was at our home too mike so yeah. you know and and uh so there you go thank you for asking all right let's get back to the crux um where we talk about the art and science and practice of communications um today uh we have the privilege to have bradley Acubiro on the crux bradley and i met a few years ago at a page diverse futures program and by the way for those of you who are listening um you know, this great program, and Bradley can attest to that, I'm sure, week-long, um, really intense, hearing from some really great leaders in communications, and uh, I've kept, had the privilege of keeping in touch with a bunch of folks who attended that program over the years, including, including Bradley. So let's get to it. Bradley is a nationally recognized expert on corporate reputation. He's a partner at Bully Pulpit Interactive. He focuses on change communications, high visibility crisis management, like my wedding, my daughter's <laughs> wedding, and media relations efforts, as well as diversity, equity, and inclusion counsel for clients. Previously, Bradley was chief spokesperson and head of global media relations for Boeing. And I'm sorry to have a little chuckle in my voice there, Bradley, but I'm just thinking about crisis management. Uh, great company, but... Um, uh, faced into some things recently. He's an adjunct lecturer at the Medill School of Journalism, Media, and Integrated Marketing Communications at Northwestern University, where he currently serves on the Board of Advisors. Welcome to the Crux, Bradley. 
Welcome to The Crux. Each week, two of the world's top communicators take you behind the scenes of the news of the day to explore the crux of communications that are shaping business, politics, and our daily lives. Hello, this is Gary Shepard. Hi, I'm Mike Fernandez, and we're glad to be with you from Boston University. Hey, thanks, Gary. Really appreciate it. And also, congratulations to your daughter. Incredible. Yes, we're, uh, it was one of the happiest days of my life. And it was sort of like when the GE stock used to go up, you know, back in the day. So, that was a long time ago. That was a long time ago, yeah. So anyway, uh, but thanks for that. We have a lot of directions I could take. We could take this conversation today based on your diverse experiences, Bradley. But before we dive in, tell us a little bit about yourself and your role at, at Bully Pulpit. Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, first of all, for those who don't know us, BPI is a marketing and public affairs firm. Uh, it was founded by the leaders of the Obama-Biden campaigns and administrations. Uh, we continue to counsel political campaigns, but also foundations like Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and companies like Goldman Sachs, Instacart, Levi Strauss, and the NFL. Uh, I lead the firm's corporate communications practice where I help these organizations to navigate transformation uh, for good often as they attempt to use their scale to make a difference in the world. Our industry is at such an inflection point, as both of you know, that not only do I spend time thinking about some of these issues for these organizations um, in an individual sense, but broadly, and have the opportunity to talk about some of this stuff in uh, Inc. Magazine and also in the classroom uh, at Northwestern University. So not quite as good as you guys at this, but I'm getting better every day. At least I try to. <laughs> That's great. Uh, Bradley, you're too humble. Um, you've had quite a career uh, from being a policy advisor to Jesse Jackson in the National Rainbow Coalition. Um, you were a governance reform consultant to the Republic of Liberia following 14 years of civil war. And as the founder of a Chicago-based nonprofit focused on policy development and advocacy, how did you transition from these types of roles, many kind of political roles, uh, to communications positions at United Technologies and, and Boeing? You know, Mike, it's funny. The career has actually been kind of a wild ride. You know, my philosophy on this has always been to just follow the people that I really wanted to learn from the most and the rest falls in place. Um, for me, the specific transition to communications came after my time working for the president of Liberia. Um, I was working on governance reform efforts for an administration that was literally working to rebuild a democracy. Uh, and it sort of dawned on me that my opportunities were outpacing my experience. Mm -hmm. um, so when I left that role, I came back to the United States and I took a job at the management consulting firm, Booz Allen Hamilton. Uh, and my, my thought process there was I can use this opportunity to build my foundation and my understanding of models um, that would help me, I think, become a little bit better at what I was out there to do. Um, during that time, I got a chance to work on the Affordable Care Act, which included, you know, the rollout of this implementation. Mm -hmm. uh, so nothing to do with passing the law. The law had been passed. Now, how do we do things like stand up state mm -hmm. health exchanges and make sure that there are enough clinical health providers on military bases, for example, when folks were coming home from war in Iraq and Afghanistan? Um, the parts that I gravitated to the most were the change management and the communications aspects. Mm -hmm. um, when a mentor asked me after this if I was interested in coming to United Technologies uh, to work in communications, I jumped at the opportunity. Um, 
and it was truly the best decision that I could have made, Mike. You know, mm-hmm. from exploding jet engines at Pratt and Whitney. Um, <laughs> not too many of them. Not too many of them. Uh, yeah, well, hey, Fred, Bradley, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, you know exactly what I'm talking about, Gary. Uh, 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 <laughs> um, of course, you you know one of the things that would be I think interesting for some, uh, Gary and I too have had journeys that included, you know, politics in our past before we got into business. But I'm curious what that what that jump was like for you and, 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 and were there things that you found were the same and other things that you found that were different? Yeah, it's such a good question. You know, there are two things that I think uh, really stuck with me. And one was the need for nimbleness. You know, mm-hmm. things change constantly in our business and you have to be able to stay ahead of those things. You have to be able to have a hunger, uh, a, a curiosity to understand a little bit about how things could go. Um, maybe not as much as legal in terms of the risk side, but enough in terms of understanding uh, what some of those things may be. Uh, and also, I think a little bit of courage. You know, a lot of times, mm-hmm. particularly in the communication seat, as you guys know, you are the conscience in the room. Mm-hmm. You are the person who has to raise their hand uh, and really push the leadership team to think a little differently about some of the things that they're focused on. And I found that to be true in advocacy. I especially found that to be true uh, in post-war Liberia, uh, where mm-hmm. folks were trying to figure out how do we actually come back from the brink of this incredibly disruptive event in our history uh, and bring folks back together. And I think the resilience of folks in that situation was incredible and taught me a lot uh, in a way that I think is carried through incredibly well for the rest of my career. Yeah. Uh, Boeing, you, you weathered uh, more than your share of crises, I think. Uh, you helped rebuild the company's trust with its stakeholders through the company's response to COVID-19, um, the national conversation around race, as well as assisted in its efforts to return the 737 MAX back to commercial service. Uh, what did you take away as a communications leader from these inflection points at Boeing? <laughs> well, this is exactly the part that, that Gary was laughing about in the beginning, you know? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I learned a lot in this time. I think maybe the most important thing I learned is that when a crisis hits, if your goal is to defend against liability, you may win a battle here and there, but inevitably you will lose the war. Um mm-hmm. If you're constantly operating, however, from a place of maximizing trust, there's no shift required when you're managing a crisis. Uh, And the disconnect, uh, well, there is no disconnect, I should say, Mm -hmm. between what you say uh, to protect the business and what you do. Um, And Mike, one other thing that was brought home for me was that during a time of crisis, communications is an operational role, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, And what I mean by that. People believe that communications is about words in some cases, right? But it's really about actions. You know, mm-hmm. over two accidents in six months, to put it in context, 346 people lost their lives when our planes went down in Indonesia and Ethiopia. Nothing that I could say as a spokesperson or even that Dave Calhoun could say as the CEO would matter if we could not clearly show the actions we had taken to ensure that something like the MAX accidents could never happen again. And it's really important. Again, I talked about, you know, being the conscious in the room sometimes as communicators, using the newspaper test as a strong tool, as a forcing mechanism to make sure that we're doing the right things as an organization. Uh, And I think if you take that role seriously, uh, it becomes a very, very powerful 
uh, seat for the communications person to sit in, and frankly, a necessary one. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's, uh, Bradley, it's always um, interesting to look at that case study for the max, right? And in fact, I, right. I teach it in my crisis class um, because there are so many lessons and, and I have to say though, that the, the fellow who wrote the book about Boeing that was out recently, yeah. uh, I, I had him in the class and I expected him to be critical in a negative way about the communications operation at the company, but he was actually complimentary. He, he was, he said he never, you know, he didn't always like the answers that he got, <laughs> but it was done professionally and respectfully and, and promptly. So, uh, so, you know, sometimes you're in those situations and you're right. You're so right about, um, say do, right. You can say a lot of things in a crisis, but, uh, unless you're doing them, um, it really doesn't matter. I do want to come around to what you talked about er- at earlier at the top of the show and your remarks about change and how you got interested in change management culture, all of that. So I'm interested going back to the max, by the way, by the way, I would say this too, you know, I have Neil Golightly has been in my classroom. He's a great guy and a friend. And he said something that I always want. I, I laughed about Boeing at the beginning and I don't mean that because I had great respect for Boeing. Yeah. And that was, oh, and Neil said this to my class. That was always one of the jobs that if somebody was interested in me, I would have seriously considered it. You know what I mean? It's one of those mm-hmm. companies where you think, hmm, yeah, if they want me, uh, I'll fly out to Chicago or wherever yeah. and talk to them about it. You know, so yeah. I have a lot of a lot of respect uh, yeah. for Boeing. And Neil's a great guy, by the way. I'm so glad you had him by. He's fantastic. And I really enjoyed my time working for him. Yeah, yeah. He's continued to give me good advice, uh, over the years. And, and, uh, so I'm, I'm, I really enjoy having him in the class. So tell me about how you rebuild trust among employees. Is that a change management exercise that you had to go through Bradley at, at Boeing during this uh, sort of vortex you were in around these tragedies? Yeah. Well, first of all, Gary, thanks for asking that question. I, I just think it's so critically important, right? Um, as you know all too well, I, identities of so many employees are just tied up in the company, right? Mm-hmm. Similar to GE, many of these employees spent their entire careers at the company. That, in some cases, is decades, right? I mean, we all know folks that had the tattoos of planes on their arms. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? How they saw themselves and how they saw the company were inextricably linked. Uh, so when the company had this terrible, visible incident, uh, that broke every belief that they had about Boeing's commitment to safety. For many of these people, it was a blow to their sense of self. Um, you know, to your question on change, change happens from the inside out. And there was no way we were going to so much as get out of the gate and rebuilding trust broadly if we couldn't win back our own employees first. Um, so how do you do that? You know, as with any of the stakeholders in this circumstance, it was about accountability, um, transparency and, and humanity. Uh, frankly, because I think we were missing some of that in the beginning. And of course, most importantly, action, as we talked about. Mm -hmm. Um, But first, we actually had to reach them, which is the funny part. (laughs) (laughs) Sometimes you forget that, don't you? (laughs) (laughs) It's exactly right. Well, so many of the tools that are available to us, and and you think about the internet, and you think about the open rates on, on some of our emails, and there are times where we're sending out really important communications and only reaching you know, 10 or 15% of our employees. 
And in a moment like this, that's not really acceptable. So, you know, part of why this is particularly interesting is as we think through this concept of external communications that we sometimes talk about, we needed to reach our own employees through external means, which meant I had to, at times, engage reporters just to be able to reach, for example, the 70,000 employees that we had in Washington State. I'd go to the Seattle Times. Right. Interesting. You know, and, and, and Gary, what's particularly interesting about that is that it serves a dual purpose, not only of reaching your employees, but convincing them that you mean what you say. Because mm-hmm. we can always whisper, you know, you put your hand over your mouth and tell your employees internally, this is what we mean, but they don't see that from you externally. But when they see it externally, it means that you're actually proud of what you're saying and that you can yes. actually, you know, convey some confidence with it. And I got to tell you, the Seattle Times reporter, Dominic Gates, who I have a tremendous amount of respect for, won a Pulitzer Prize covering the Boeing story following the Max. Is so that right? If, okay. That's exactly right. So if we went to, to Dominic and we had something we wanted to say about what we were doing, we needed to make sure that it was airtight, right? So this wasn't a fluff way of reaching your employee. Yeah, yeah. And that's oh. a high wire act too, Bradley, oh, right? Sure. So, you know, it's you don't control that channel. That's exactly right. Uh, they made it very clear we did not control that channel. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for tuning in to this episode of The Crux. On The Crux, we discuss the intersection of communications, business, and society. Follow us at The Crux on Facebook and Twitter. You can also find our episodes on SoundCloud, Spotify, iTunes, and on our website at thecruxpodcast.org. Now, let's get back to the episode. So, Bradley, I want to jump to your role at Bully Pulpit and and the kind of advice you're giving clients today in what is, you know, as we talk about this, now there's a war in the Middle East um, to go with the war in Europe, all kinds of things, technology changing uh, work in many ways and changing businesses relationship, changing business relationships with uh, government um, and politics and policy. It's just, it it, it is moving so fast. Sometimes it's hard. It is hard to keep up. So uh, as you adjust to your your clients, adjust to these new new norms, they have to find new strategies, right? For dealing with this, this world and the role that people expect for business, which is that you'll have a voice, uh, that you'll take action on important social issues so we always say, you know, you should be guided by your values in these kinds of situations. But what kind of advice are you giving to your, your clients these days around the interaction they have on policy and social issues? One of my favorite quotes is, if you're lucky enough to find a way of life that you love, you have to find the courage to live it. That's great. Yeah. And, and it's kind of interesting because I, I think about that in terms of this work and I maybe tweak the quote a little bit um, and take some creative liberty. But, you know, if you're if you're lucky enough to determine a set of values that your team is aligned on, you have to find the courage to defend them. Right. Right. It's, it's really about consistency and courage. Um, you know, Disney flip flopped, Bud Light backed off. Right. You, you've got to figure out where you stand and stand 
Um, there are a number of companies that actually do this, and this is across the spectrum, right? Nike is an example. Um, they have held strong to their virtues for quite some time. Mm -hmm. Of course, Patagonia has, but so has Hobby Lobby. So has Chick-fil-A. These mm -hmm. are organizations who have discovered who they are, what they stand for, have worked out their stakeholder audiences to align around who they are in the world. Uh, and they haven't changed it, frankly. You know, it's kind of interesting when you think about this, because most organizations are most afraid of getting targeted in these circumstances. And so they want to find an answer that it's going to keep them out of the headlines and keep mm -hmm. them away from criticism. But when you think about the opponents, the, the particularly even in Congress these days, places that are pointing out companies and making examples of them, opponents like, you know, are very similar to bullies, right? They want easy victories, you yeah. know? They're, they're less likely to train their energies on those who are going to put up a fight and those who are going to stand their ground. And, and you know, it's kind of funny. You guys both probably know uh, one of my fellow partners, Robert Gibbs, who's here with us at BPI. Yeah, he, he has this funny thing he likes to say, which is that it's possible to take a 50-50 issue and lose it 100%. Um, <laughs> I've done that before. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's exactly right. Um, so it's just, I, I, when I, I can't stress enough when I talk to, uh, clients, it's really about finding their, their space and owning it. Um, and that's really key, uh, in these moments. That's great advice. So Bradley, this obviously has, has, has like really big implications, uh, in terms of talent and who's getting hired because of what's happening more broadly, as well as what's happening inside these corporations. Hmm. That's such a good question, Mike. You know, the war for talent broadly, as people have thought about this and kind of talked about this has certainly entered a different phase, right? Given where we're at with the economy, this is not the moment where you could quit your job today, find another job before lunch um, and have, you know, a 60% increase in your salary for most of the, you know, junior or even up to mid-level employees, which we saw as recently as 12, 18 months ago. I mean, that was a crazy time mm -hmm. for organizations to keep up with. Um, and while that has shifted and died down a bit, the reality is the war for the best talent is still alive and well. Um, you know, when I think about the role of communications, the thing that really strikes me the most is that employees need alignment between the company broad reputation and the employee experience. If you're an employee who is looking at how a company represents itself externally, particularly to potential candidates, but broadly to the world, and it doesn't resonate with your lived experience, you are going to become disgruntled very fast. Yes. Right. And the thing that I try to talk to companies about is that you're very concerned about employer brand, but what you should be concerned about is your employees identity and how do they see themselves in relation to your organization? Do they see themselves as better for having worked and associated with you? Or do they think that they'd be better off without you? Because if it's the latter, you're probably going to be losing some of your best talent pretty quickly. Um, and I think a lot of people are disconnected from that. You know, it's, it's kind of funny. We use at BPI this thing we call the cocktail party test, which is basically when you meet somebody at a party and you ask them <laughs> what they do, you know, how many questions does it take to get them to tell you the name of their employer? Right. We've all heard someone who's like, oh, I'm an engineer. You know, how many questions does it take to get them to tell you the name of their employer? Right. We've all heard someone who's like, oh, I'm an engineer. Uh, well, do they say that they're an engineer at Boeing or do they mm -hmm. say, you know, anything beyond that? Or 
do you have to ask a few questions before you get there? Um, and and comms has such a big role in, in helping folks to have things that they're proud about, to congeal experiences that are shared, lift them up, but also in terms of authenticity. Because if we're having conversations about what works well at this company, we should also be able to own the things that we need to improve and put actions behind what we're going to do to improve those things so that as we go out and we talk about the experience of being an employee at X company, it is representative, it is aspirational, and it's something that we can be proud of. So I have to think that when there's a crisis or there are issues or there are negative things that are happening outside the organization, it's just as important while we manage those external issues to also think about what we need to do internally, both for our employees as well as for our communications employees. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I truly feel like when you have challenges externally, that is the time that you have to be most focused on your employees. I mean, you should be before that moment, but in that moment, you need to make sure that they're all in the house. And, and I say that because your employees um, are your greatest assets, but they're also your greatest liabilities, <laughs> right? And they can be your greatest ambassadors uh, or they can be your greatest detractors and most credible detractors. And so, you know, as you think about employee communications in these moments, you need to do everything you can to make sure one employees are not surprised by what they hear externally. First and, and, and Bradley, is there a different approach you have to take with millennial employees, young, younger uh, employees? What's your experience with that? Well, let me start by saying I myself am a millennial. Um, yeah. You know, it, it's interesting, right? Because as we think through uh, some of this, and, and I'll talk about millennials for a second, because this actually is, is a topic I'm passionate about, you know, so are the Secretary of Transportation, uh, Pete Buttigieg, right? The sitting governor of Arkansas, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, and the current CEO of Instacart, BG Simo. And, you know, for grounding millennials, are, are anyone between the age of 27 and 42? Uh, you know, these folks may be managing their first group of employees or leading divisions of major corporations. Well, but if we think about where we are today, the reality is we're focused on Gen Z, not so much millennials. Uh, and we do see, Mike, a lot of focus on Gen Z expectations. But many of the things that we see that generation pushing for and asking for, the millennials pushed for and asked for first. And, and we created space for this conversation that we're in right now. Um, you know, I like to think of us as the generational go-betweens, right? Um, you know, because let's take the dual examples of technology and work-life balance, which are just core to the topic of this generational conversation, right? Like, Prior generations, you know, millennials uh, did not grow up with cell phones. We did not grow up with high-speed internet, but we were exposed to both of them young. Uh, so by the time that most of us entered the workforce, the shift to an always-on expectation had begun to take hold. Um, we believed in working hard, right? I'll be the first to say it. We we're very much a hustle culture as millennials, right? Oh, absolutely. Um, right? Yeah. But we rebelled against the notion that we should be beholden to our employers 24-7 just because the technology allowed for it. Um, and why is that? It's because we watched our parents laid off in the 2008 recession, right? We watched our employers pull pensions away well before we'd ever have a prayer of accessing them. So we've got empathy for the Gen Zers, but we also understand the values of the generations before us. And what I think our leadership reflects is a moderating diplomacy 
with a streak, just a streak <laughs> of the type of boldness that's helped us enable some of the shifts in our workforce that we've seen to date. Um, and I think this is just the beginning. That's so smart. That's so smart. And, and, and our experiences, Mike and mine, so different from yours. Hmm. You're right. You know, both with the same. I love the idea that you recognize. We both recognize the value of work, but we've had different experiences yeah. brought on by technology, brought on by cultural changes. Uh, I think that's a really smart observation. Bradley, one of your areas of focus uh, for Bully Pulpit clients centers on diversity, equity, and inclusion. Where do DE&I and corporate ESG, you know, environmental, social, and governance issues go now, in your opinion, in the aftermath of the Supreme Court's affirmative action decision as it applies to college admissions? After all, uh, shortly after the opinion this summer, 13 state attorneys general sent a letter to the CEOs of the 100 largest companies domiciled in the U.S., arguing that the decision striking down the decades-old practices aimed at achieving a diverse student body could also apply to companies in their hiring, their uh, advancement, uh, sourcing, and DEI activities in general, essentially telling the CEOs, we're watching you. So what are you counseling your clients to do in the wake of these kinds of government actions and anti-woke behaviors? Yeah, Mike, man, that's a big question, right? Um, you know, first of all, I, I want to say a couple of things. One, first of all, it's campaign season, right? Um, so I, I will note that there is a distinction between where we are in this moment and where we are at in the broader arc of conscious capitalism, right? Um, I think when you look at the uh, affirmative action court ruling and the attorney's general letter, you know, we're in a very precarious moment. But what I do talk to clients about is that in many of these cases, while legal is the apparatus that we're describing, you know, we found that it's a lot less of a risk um, legally uh, than folks would expect. You know, when confronted with lawsuits, Starbucks, Amazon, they, they won their suits. You know, a, a, a VC shop out of Atlanta that focused on giving uh, uh, investments, particularly to black women, was targeted for a lawsuit. They won their lawsuit as well. But what we found in so many of these cases is that the letters and the lawsuits from legal minds and from politicians are really all about fear tactics, right? You know, many of the companies I'm talking to, not all, uh, unfortunately not all, but many of the companies I'm talking to are still investing, but they're cautious about talking about it, right? We talked about this earlier, but they do not want the target on their back. Um, and so they're like, how can we actually do the things that we've been doing before without getting called in for a hearing in Congress or getting a boycott or whatever else it may be. Um, we, we did a little bit of uh, research actually in VPI, which is worth maybe flagging for just a, a half a second. Um, when you think about terminology, words matter. We know that as well as anybody possibly can. Um, and ESG, for example, loses when it's about forced morality. People perceive this about forced morality uh, because 
most folks didn't understand what ESG stood for. And if you pulled most Americans, they don't actually know what the letters actually stand for, much less what it represents in terms of, of uh, corporate action. Um, but if you pull that same group of people, if you find a way past the labels, the substance behind ESG resonates as common sense business, um, which is really fascinating uh, because as with any business effort or investment, you know, it resonates in so much as one, people understand how it lines to your business strategy and two, you're committed to that approach. So, you know, uh, we talked about telling uh, uh, business leaders to figure out where you stand and stand there. You know, that absolutely is true in the context of ESG broadly and in DEI specifically, because your stakeholders, particularly your employees, who in many cases have voted with their feet and have chosen to come and work for and with you have done it because of the things we've been talking about and saying we stand for. So if you choose this moment to pull back, including just the way you talk about it and how much confidence you place in the future of it, a lot of your employees actually take that as a sign of distrust. You are not committed to your beliefs. You're not committed to your stances. And that's going to impact the way they see you in the future. And in 14 months after this election cycle is over, for example, and you want to start talking about these things again, don't expect them to just jump on board again. Yeah. yeah. You know, this this idea that words matter, I, I, I hear from so many people and I tend to think of it that ESG is dead as a phrase, you know, and we've gone through a number of these things, right? Corporate social responsibility sustainability, all of these things, but it, it's it, it's a lesson for all of us. And I, I love the way you think about it. It's, ESG is just doing things the right way, running your company the right way, protecting the resources that you use or, you know, it, it's really, we've lost the language war, which is remarkable for professional communicators in some ways. And, and this is what my old boss at GE used to say at Bradley all the time, Jeff Immel on climate. Uh, which was that we got too precious about climate and some of the words and language that we used. And, um, and I think that he was, he was right. So, so in addition to DEI at BPI, DEI at Bully Pulpit, you wrote an article for Forbes, which I thought was really interesting, the Catch-22 for Minority Leaders, an interesting view on what minority leaders face in the workplace and the concept of the emotional tax using air quotes here, minority leaders face. What is, you tell our listeners what you meant by that. Yeah, Gary, in today's world, the most praised leaders are often the ones who are the most authentic. Uh, why is that? Because people, you know, we're more likely to trust, excuse me, we're more likely to trust those who bring their real selves uh, to the workplace, right? So what happens when being your authentic self comes at a cost. Um, the article I wrote for Forbes explores uh, how many people, myself included, hide many of our experiences as minorities because we worry about reinforcing stereotypes hmm. or creating distance from people who can't relate. Um, you know, I, I, I have had several friends actually, and this was particularly true shortly after George Floyd, you know, come to me and say, essentially, I've never talked about diversity. I've never talked about my race in the workplace. Hmm. But now that this event has happened, I get questions in group meetings about how I feel or what we should be doing differently as a company. And they're saying, I'm not a DEI expert, <laughs> you know? Um, right. 
and you know you end up on committees and and what has happened in many cases for a lot of these folks is the first time they speak up you know they're now getting uh wellness checks and you know one talked about how their vice president uh had reached out he was an engineer at the firm and uh, wanted to set up a regular monthly meeting just to check in and see how they were doing. And on one hand, you appreciate that there is this level of focus and appreciation for you, may, the fact you may be going through something, but also it creates a whole new pressure. It's a, it's an emotional tax. Um, <laughs> yeah. uh, and, and, you know, I think a lot of folks don't appreciate some of the disparate impact of that. And so, you know, in that article, we explore it a little bit, but this is just such a real thing that is now part of our reality, uh, you know, with this ongoing conversation around race in particular. Bradley, you've already talked about uh, how diverse leaders can show up in a more authentic way. Uh, but an article that really caught my eye was in Inc. Magazine, uh, piece that you wrote about your personal experience with managing grief in the workplace in a very authentic way. Um, you know, your insights in this space, I think, are, are, are pretty wonderful um, in terms of how to model appropriate behaviors and the need for leaders uh, to think about self-care and take time to grieve. Um, I know this is a topic we don't speak probably often enough about, but many of us have to deal with it. Could you share some of what you wrote? Yeah, thank you, Mike. You know, earlier this year, one of my closest friends in the world was hit by a car while she was walking in her neighborhood. Uh, she did not survive the night. Um, and what's more, uh, it was the night before she planned to fly out to attend my wedding. Uh, you know, her bag was already packed. It, it was really, really, really challenging. Um, you know, the article that you referenced, Mike, talks about a few of the lessons that I've learned about managing loss and, and grief over the years, uh, specifically while continuing to balance important responsibilities, which each of us have. Um, you know, I reference a handful of things, but I think the biggest ones, uh, uh, points to make here are communicate. You started off by saying, Mike, that we, for the longest time, have not really been able to talk about these things. Uh, and historically, that has been a real challenge. And so you felt the need to bottle these things up inside. But particularly as we have had this move to authenticity, communicating with those around you is not only welcome, uh, but it's critical. Uh, because you need to be able to do the second thing, which is take the time you need to mourn, right? You are no good to anyone if you are half there and your mind and your heart are in another place. Um, and you should three, not be afraid to ask for help. Um, you'll be surprised how many people either A, can relate, uh, or B, will empathize enough to honestly just want to look for ways to be able to help you. Um, you know, and you've got to be able to let people in. Uh, you know, I think there are a couple of things that does, but in addition to helping you uh, with your healing process and with your, you know, workload management when it comes to these things, you also come to find that there is the added benefit of being more accessible and more relatable to folks because we've all gone through something. You know, it may not be the same thing. We've all gone through something. And being able to show that vulnerability uh, allows other people the space to do that themselves when they need it. And that creates better cultures um, and better relationships. What a story, but so smart. And, uh, I, you know, having worked at a place like GE, which had a very macho culture, 
when at least when I joined, there was none of that. And, and it was, again, a great company. But that stuff you were expected to leave at the door. Yeah. Grief, yeah. you know, tragedy. Um, people very friendly, you know, very consoling in, in some sense. But, hey, uh, that project is still due. That's right. <laughs> you know? And, and, right. But that wasn't just GE. And, and knowing friends at the time in other companies, that was true across the board. We had that 90s sort of mentality that, uh, you know, uh, you toughen up guy you know and and get the work done so i want to ask a last question bradley we've had such such great advice from you for practitioners here and boy your students at northwestern are lucky to have you and that seriously um um someone with a perspective that has such a human element to it um i think is what uh, young people really need today That's right. <laughs> in addition to the right. practical skills so what do you tell young people who ask you, what do I need to do to be prepared for the world that we're operating in and that I'm about to go out and, uh, you know, in the work workforce in what's, what do you try to tell these young people? Yeah. Yeah. Well, first of all, thank you. You know, in, in terms of how to prepare, I think curiosity is probably the most obvious. Um, but beyond that, you know, there are four things uh, that I typically push my students to develop. Um, one is an understanding of audience, right? Two, an understanding of finance and business strategy. Three, an understanding, particularly in this point um, of, of, of our time, uh, an understanding of public affairs. Uh, four, and this one I think continues to evolve, is an understanding of the critical technologies that will impact our space. And right now, that's most notably AI. Um, mm -hmm. But if there's one thing that we know, it's that the world is evolving quickly. Um, if we can stay ahead of it, great. But at minimum, we need to keep up with it. Um, and for those aspiring for the top job, especially, the reality is CEOs are increasingly looking for one credible voice to counsel them on all matters of society. So being able to put these things together uh, is going to be an essential uh, aspect of your path to achieving that role. Um, and I think, you know, the outstanding question is, will communications leaders occupy that seat? And mm -hmm. I think that's up to us. Yeah, that's so smart. I'm going to steal that wholesale, Bradley, for my, <laughs> for my classes um, uh, and uh, in the future. And number two, by the way, uh, understanding of finance and biz strategy, that's the course I'm teaching this semester oh, at excellent. BU. So, Such an uh, important course. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you, Bradley. This has been fantastic. And I, I really appreciate you taking the time uh, to be on the Crux. Bradley Acubiro is a partner at Bully Pulpit Interactive and someone that uh, I'm, I'm happy to say I've got to know over the past few years. Uh, Bradley, thanks again. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Thanks also to our listeners, and we'll be back next week with another episode of The Crux of the Story. Take care, Mike. Thanks for listening to The Crux, and make sure to listen for our next episode. Follow us at The Crux on Facebook and on Twitter, and you can find our episodes on SoundCloud and on our website, thecruxpodcast.org.